1: I trust you didn't tune in today <clears throat> to hear the latest outrage, the latest anger, the anxiety or frustration or fear, because I'm not all about that. I don't, I don't want to waste your time <clears throat> telling you all the ways the world is going wrong. You have eyes, you have ears, I assume. You can probably, you know, see that around yourself. But I am here to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible and then to step up and make a difference in a way that only you can. doesn't matter if you uh, get nominated for a Nobel Prize. It doesn't matter if anybody notices, if you ever have a headline about the wonderful things you're doing or, you know, a biopic made highlighting your life and your accomplishments. Are you living with purpose? And I'm not saying this from the standpoint of, well, you know, of course I am, and so I'm so much better than you. I'm just saying everything is different. Everything takes on more meaning, everything takes on more depth when you're living with a specific purpose, as in figuring out what you can do. So with that in mind, let's dive right in. we got some interesting stuff to, to cover today. Not so much political, but you'll get a few shades of, of, of politics that have seeped in here and there. This one I had to share just because, well, I think somebody may actually be advancing a theory that I've kind of been promoting myself for a few years. And it may be kooky, but I still have this belief. I just, I can't shake it. I have a theory that there was a time when we were a more respectful society. And I think it was in part because men wore hats. So, yeah, I'm actually, I know you're saying, oh, this just sounds like a guy who's too lazy to to comb his hair. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that. But, I mean, I'm I'm actually wishing for, you know, male pattern baldness to kick in so I don't have as much hair to have to deal with. I just, you know, I like a low-maintenance dude. But, no, there's something about manners and respect when people dress to a level that uh, that commands respect. I don't know if that makes sense. I want to share with you some thoughts from Taki Theodoropoulos. That's a mouthful. But uh, Taki has uh, a really good take on hats off to the morons. And I thought this was interesting, because he was watching a film, a 1948 film, starring Gail Storm, a beautiful young American actress in her debut role, and he says, I spotted a little faux pas in this movie made in 1948, so this is a time when, you know, guys wearing fedoras, that was that was all the rage, okay, we didn't have as much milady, and it was more of a mainstream thing, men in hats. So in this scene, she exits an elevator accompanied by three men, all wearing fedoras, But he says, believe it or not, that scene could not have happened in real life. And here's why. All men wore hats back then, and all men removed them when a lady, make that any woman, entered an elevator. See, this is one of the reasons why I think that, you know, we were were more polite when people wore hats. Because that was a courtesy. You go indoors, you know, you take off your hat. A woman enters the room or a woman enters the elevator, off comes the hat. Little thing, but it was manners. So there were no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It was customary to take one's hat off. So much so that uh, even today, some 70 years after this movie was made, Taki says, it just struck me when I saw the actors exiting an elevator with their hats on while accompanying a lady. Now, from here, he goes into a little bit of a rant about uh, men still wearing hats today. But he says, these are baseball caps. And here, it gets a little personal. Because he says, I don't know a single moron who doesn't wear one. Sorry, I'm just casting a glance over here to my desk. Oh, yep, that's a baseball cap that I wore before I sat down here in front of uh, the, the sound console. Okay, so uh, Tacky thinks, thinks that morons wear baseball caps. Okay, go ahead. Now, he says, mind you, there's a hell of a lot of non-morons who also wear them. But, he says, I'm keeping it personal. People I know who wear baseball caps, I try to avoid as much as possible. And I only make an exception when the wearer has a MAGA hat on. Now, he says, that's not because I'm for Trump. He says, I'm not for Trump because he lacks dignity. But he says, I like the people who are for him. The ones the permanent state ensconced in D.C. sees as cannon fodder or worse. Some caps are donned to maintain an incognito yet cool air with uh, Harry and Meghan rarely without them. But he says, "Never mind, and enough about hats and caps." He goes, "I'm going to tell you about a slob who makes Harvey Weinstein look like Bo Brummel." He's a first-time United States senator. He's talking about John Fetterman from Pennsylvania. He says the hulking six-foot-eight Democrat politician wears a baggy—I'm sorry, a baggy hoodie and large black shorts in the Senate foyer while he votes, and for a time he was allowed by the other vulgarian Chuck Schumer to enter the Senate chamber dressed in that manner. Now, Fetterman does take the proverbial cake for bad taste and manners. <laughs> he says, it used to be said that clothes make the man, but in today's egalitarian culture, that might sound elitist, heaven forbid. Fetterman had a major stroke just before he got elected in 2020. At least that's an excuse. Schumer allowing him inside the chamber wearing shorts and sneakers. That proves how low our politicians have sunk. Now, he says, here's a story that might, uh, that might charm those of you who still respect dress standards. The writer is Lance Morrow, perfect name for a terrific and wonderful writer for Time magazine that he was, and it's account of his time as a teenage boy, a page boy, in the U.S. Senate in the early 1950s. He says, about 20 years ago, I sat next to him and his wife at a dinner, and I fell madly in love with her. But alas, I never saw either of them again. Massachusetts Leverett Staltonstall of Mayflower Stock stood ramrod straight with neat steel gray hair and a pronounced plantagenet jaw. He looked like an aristocratic lobsterman. Nearby sat Clyde Rourke Hui of North Carolina, an upcountry Confederate antique who wore a wing collar and black string tie. Then there was LBJ of Texas, the Senate minority leader. Lyndon Johnson was radiant with vulgar opulence, his shirts monogrammed with his initials on each French cuff. Now, Taki says, look, no, no longer do people write as elegantly as this, and senators certainly don't dress like their superior antecedents. But he says the archaic dignity that Morrow reminisces about says says it all about what happened to America. What used to be a respected chamber has pretty much turned into a smelly gym. He says, thank God Schumer and Fetterman have for the moment been told off, but the walls of respectability have been breached. He says it's obvious that reminiscing about the past isn't going to bring it back. But he says, looking around me here in New York never ceases to upset me when I compare it with what used to be Some places have been transformed into a zombie apocalypse with strung-out drug addicts smoking crack and injecting junk into their arms in broad daylight. Fragmented families, degeneracy, crime, sleaze, you name it, big American cities have it. There's porn everywhere, mass killings in schools and nightclubs, and let's not forget shoplifting, wrong-way cyclists, and illegal pot-vending stores everywhere. But he says what takes the cake, however is Hollywood bad boy Charlie Sheen. Now, how would you like it if you were rich and famous Charlie and were just informed that your 19-year-old daughter Sammy had just begun her career as a sex worker? They used to be called prostitutes, but now euphemisms are the rage. So here's his reaction as he told to Bustle, Oh, this can only go bad. Poor Charlie. He then recovered and added, She's doing this and it can only be a much more successful and pleasant experience with the support of myself, her mom, Denise Richards, and others. Tacky says, all I can say is, wow, Hollywood must be doing something right where children of the rich and famous are concerned. And let's not forget the message it sends to us with every crummy picture that's released. This is America today. He says, it's not a bad time to move to Albania. (laughs) I like this guy's writing style and he is old school. He's been around for a while, but he's seen some interesting things. He's done some interesting things. And I kind of like his observation. And I'm still, I'm, you know, hey, right or wrong, this, this is, my theory is, if we would go back to wearing hats, men wearing suits, as they're out and about the business of life, I believe our attitudes would change. Now, I don't know, you know, maybe the youth will still do as the youth are going to do. They've got to be a little bit counterculture. I was actually kind of having this conversation with my son the other day about no matter how careful our parents are, you know, to try to... Show show our our children. Look, this is legit. These rules are in place not to thwart you from having fun, but to protect you from decisions that you can't easily walk back. And we talked about why. Why does that younger generation always feel the need to push back to rebel? We gotta have our own music. We gotta have our own TV shows. We gotta have our own themes and so forth. And it's it's part of the circle of life. I get that. I hated my parents' music, and then you know now. I find myself <laughs> in middle age and I'm thinking, you know, actually that that music was was pretty good. But for a time, I had to push back. All I'm saying is, if we could move in one direction, away from manners, away from grace and charm, and you know, um, basically standards, why can't we move back the other direction? You know, is gravity taken over? Is this a one-way street? Look, I'm not a good-looking guy, but I do dress up okay. And if you were to put me in a nice suit with a fedora, I dare say that I would uh, I would probably cast a respectable shadow about town, assuming you could get me out of my studio and out there into daylight. I kind of prefer keeping a low profile. This
0: is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thank you again for tuning in. I'm not here to, uh, you know, spell out, okay, here's all the stuff that makes me mad. Now you tell me what makes you mad, and we'll be mad together. Which, sadly, I, I, I love talk radio, but... I, I'm very discouraged by what I have seen much of talk radio become over the years, which is kind of, it's, it's an invitation. Hey, are we mad about the same things? Yeah, well, we can be friends. <laughs> my goal is not to make you mad, although I might. I have some, you know, kind of unorthodox opinions, but my goal is to assure you that whatever whatever painful truths I may share, and this, this is the church of the painful truth here. Whatever truths I may share that are uncomfortable, I don't share them for a sense of, Haha, are you suffering? Are you masochistic? Do you like the pain? Would you like more? I'm telling you as a friend, I'm telling you as someone who loves you as well as my country enough to say something if I see something that's, that's not right. And to encourage you to think it through and scope it out for yourself. Interesting article here from Charles Hugh Smith. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but maybe you've noticed social trust has declined a lot in our society. And Charles Hugh Smith has a really great column. He's He is more of an economist and more of a, a financial writer and very good. I mean, his his information can be very technical, but but it's solid. This guy's not pulling stuff out of thin air. But when he talks about uh, social trust, the baseline measure of social stability and how it's eroded, it leads Charles Hugh Smith to ask the question, can we reverse America's distemper? And listen to this description of America's discontent. This is going to blow your mind. A Hamlet-like loss of self-confidence with an apocalyptic sense of doom for the civilization. On the right, it embodies a conviction that the sensate culture is pushing the society down the gathering slope of drugs and fornication to destruction. On the left, there's the vague sense that America is imperialist, fascist-oriented, caught in inner contradictions of class and ethnic struggles, which will end in self-destructive wars or evil chaos. The fragmenting and polarizing of institutions, family, neighborhood, university, church, nation. In short, the overloading of the social nervous system by sudden accelerations of change. That is descriptive. But here's the crazy thing. It's very descriptive of America today. But Charles Hugh Smith says, interestingly, that was written in January of 1974. That was describing America 50 years ago. This is from an article by Max Lerner in Foreign Affairs in January of 1974. Charles Hugh Smith says, I've often referred to Peter Turchin's evidence-based cyclical mapping of the structural sources of social disorder, which he has updated in his latest work, End Times, Elites, Counter-Elites, and the Path of Political Disintegration. He says, Turchin identified identified 50-year cycles of integration in which people find reasons to cooperate, and disintegration, in which people find reasons to devolve cooperation. So from this perspective, that an article from 50 years ago sounds current, is not only no surprise, he says it was easily predictable. Now this Salon article summarizes many of the conclusions in Turchin's new book, Hope and End Times, Peter Turchin's analysis of our coming collapse, could help us avoid it. So from the Salon article, we hear, For all of its depth and breadth, there's a simple message at the core of end times. At the heart of our problems, Turchin writes, is a perverse wealth pump taking from the poor and giving to the rich, and we have to find a way to turn it off. This reflects one of the most fundamental principles in sociology, the iron law of oligarchy, which states when an interest group acquires a lot of power, it inevitably starts using that power in self-interested ways. For example, while wages fell far behind the growth of economic productivity from 1979 onward, Turchin cites analysis from the Economic Policy Institute indicating that three-fourths of that gap was due to elite-driven policy shifts, weakened labor statistics, the erosion of collective bargaining, corporate globalization, and so-called fiscal austerity. Diminished economic conditions for the less educated were accompanied by a decline in the social institutions that nurtured their social life and cooperation. These institutions include the family, the church, the labor union, the public schools, and the parent-teacher associations, and various voluntary neighborhood associations. Back in America's previous cyclical crisis, Lerner identified the sources of decline this way. He said, Civilizations die not only of rigidity, failure to meet challenges, constitutional breakdown. They may also die of deep alienations and the erosion of crucial institutions. By the way, that's very in keeping with fourth turning methodology. Lerner also said that America's cult of change precluded a decline due to rigidity Saying, my own stress is on studying the crucial factors in the death of past civilizations and using them to put questions concerning American American directions. So to start with, the rigidity which marked a number of declines and falls is only minimally present in America with her cult of change and her experience of social and cultural revolution. Now, Charles Hugh Smith says, I'll explore the issue of rigidity in upcoming posts, but he says, for now, let's consider the decay of America's social and economic foundations. And here's where he brings out the charts. And it shows how that perverse wealth pump has strip mined the bottom 90% to enrich the top 1%. Very interesting. Looking at uh, third quarter, 1989 versus fourth quarter, 2022. Social trust, says Charles Hugh Smith, a baseline, of, a baseline measure of social, sec- social stability, rather, has eroded. And he says it's worth noting that the tumultuous 1970s really don't come off that badly in the next chart that he shows compared to the present. It's not coincidental that social trust rose in the 1990s when prosperity included the entirety of households, not just the top 10%, and has since declined sharply as prosperity was was concentrated in the top 10%. And by the way, the, the chart on U.S. social trust, by gosh, it does seem to show that. Now, the hyper-financialization and hyper-globalization of the economy, the engines of wealth and income inequality, took off in 2000, more than tripling total debt. Soaring debt service is a consequential measure of financial decay. And he shows <laughs> it's, it's astonishing I mean, I was paying pretty close attention starting, I'm going to say about 2011, but the the amount of debt that that was uh, taken on, holy smokes, that line is going straight up. And across every institution, says Charles Hugh Smith, the entrenched elites and incumbents now respond to decline by just doing more of what's failed. Not a sign of flexibility, but of self-serving rigidity and he's got this wonderful s curve of rapid expansion stagnation and decline of doing more of what failed anyway it's an interesting article and even if you're not you know a hardcore economist or a financial analyst you would probably find you know some very good information here to better understand what's happening and i'm not going to suggest that there's one fix and that fixes to elect donald john trump as president in 2024 i'm not sure that elections alone In fact, I I will say this another way. I'm certain elections alone are not going to be enough to fix what ails us. We can't fix it from the top down. And that's unfortunately the mindset that a lot of people seem to have adopted. Well, if we can just get the right people in, well, we'll get this thing fixed. It'll just trickle down and everything will work itself out. Nope. Nope. The longer I live, the more I'm convinced the, the, the changes that have to happen start with the individual. And when enough individuals please pardon the, the phrase, get their poop in a group, when they really, you know, get it together, that's when you start to see wholesale change in society. I can't remember, um, there was a, a technical institute, a polytechnical institute that uh, had a study that said when a belief is firmly held by 10% of society, it will spread generally throughout society and be accepted. as Well, of course, we all believe that. We all knew that. Like, you know, people are better when they wear hats. Okay, I made that last part up, but... 10%. So we got to work on building that 10%, being that 10% who actually gets what's happening.
0: This is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian
1: Hyde show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I know from time to time, I will do or say something on this program that rubs somebody the wrong way. And I do appreciate hearing from you. There are multiple ways that you could reach me across the various podcast platforms. You can send me a message if, if you would like. Uh, you can also go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com. Contact me through my show notes there. It's, it's for, you can leave a voice message if you want to. But I, I want to encourage you, if I have said or done something that has in some way rubbed you the wrong way or otherwise offended you or alienated you, I'd like to make it right, but I, I can't do that unless I know about it. So here's what I'd like you to do, if you would be so kind. And again, this is just for those that I've offended. Please write a short but you know detailed explanation of where I have uh, where I have done you wrong. If you would write that on a hundred dollar bill and uh, just uh, send it to me, um, you can find my address there, uh, the, the mailing address uh, in in my website. And, uh, again, just write the complaint on a $100 bill, send it to me, and I will do my very best to take care of it. I have no idea how many people I've offended. You know, frankly, there's a part of me that hopes it's quite a few that'll at least take the time to write it on a $100 bill and tell me. All right. Thank you. And thanks for playing along. So, few things will test our commitment to sound principles, like the concept of fairness, fairness. Got a great article here from J.B. Shirk from AmericanThinker.com about the catastrophic death of fairness. He's really got an interesting take. He says some social psychologists believe that humans are biologically wired to seek fair relationships with others. Some theologians believe that the soul's capacity for distinguishing right from wrong leads a moral por- moral person rather toward the same result, whether genetically or spiritually inclined to prefer fair outcomes. We humans are not comfortable around those who cheat and who prosper from duplicity. Cheating is ugly, and therefore it's despised. Now, systemic cheating, however, dominates Western life. Elevating diversity for diversity's sake over all other metrics for gauging achievement has reduced merit and hard work to second-class virtues. Rewarding illegal aliens with amnesty has cheapened the sacrifices of those lawful immigrants who've struggled to integrate into their new home countries. How about this one? Allowing delusional men to dominate women's sports has cheated female athletes of a fair playing field for pursuing excellence. So in ways big and small, woke governments, corporations, and academic institutions cheat Western citizens of the opportunity to enjoy the fruits of their own labors. Now, of course, systemic cheating is disguised in language that sounds noble. Right? Woke Marxists use fairness jujitsu to force disingenuous and unprincipled change. Now, when you're unfairly promoting a less talented person over a more talented person because of his respective skin colors and why they celebrate that as a victory for diversity, yeah, that's just a reminder that in the 21st century, racists are still obsessed with how a person looks at the expense of what thoughts occupy his mind. But without any public debates or votes, governments have replaced equal treatment under the law with equitable redistribution or in layman's terms, special treatment under the law so that certain classes of people can benefit at the expense of others. In an amazing case of Orwellian doublespeak, the state categorizes those classes that are unfairly rewarded as underprivileged and the people against whom it discriminates as privileged Never in human history have people with privilege felt so marginalized. All this cheating is done for the stated purpose of including many different types of people, but it depends entirely on excluding people to obtain fraudulently manufactured and prejudiced results. Now, none of this is fair, says J.B. Shirk. Stealing the earned successes of some so that others may benefit without sacrifice Yeah, that has a tendency to permanently scar both the victim of the theft and the supposed beneficiary. When hard work and dedication are spurned, a seed of dejection is planted that can spoil an otherwise promising life. When unearned rewards become expected entitlements, the enriching pursuit of human excellence withers and often dies. Aside from the damage to individual lives, though, systemic cheating destroys society. Shirk says if humans are hardwired to prefer fair outcomes, then the proliferation of unfair outcomes makes life deeply unsettling. If pursuing fairness in our lives forms an integral part of our spiritual connection to God, then unfair systems cause moral havoc on the soul. Cultural bonds become strained and the shared respect for rules and laws soon slips away. So what's the quickest path to anarchy and civil strife? How about the imposition of an unfair and unjust worldview that rationalizes stealing from those who toil and punishing those who succeed? And when virtue is mocked as another imaginary form of white supremacy, then vice rots society and leads it to ruin. Now, Shirk says the cost of undermining fair human relations is immense. The U.S. Civil War took more lives than every other American war combined. The Nazi-implemented Holocaust killed two out of three European Jews. Some 50 million human beings remain slaves today, so wherever and whenever unfair systems are permitted to propagate, immense human suffering is the result. And when those unfair systems are eventually repudiated, further human suffering is the price for emancipation. He says, one would think that history has been painfully clear on this subject. Nations that deny human beings equality under the law will be afflicted with great tribulation and may even disappear. When different rules govern different categories of people, there can be no prospect for future peace. He says every year, U.S. universities pass over Asian American applicants with higher grades and test scores in order to select new students from a specially designated underprivileged category even though a disproportionate number of these Asian Americans come from economically modest families who immigrated to the United States in the last two generations. For so many of these Asian Americans, hard work and discipline have been the keys to their academic success. How have American universities rewarded their virtue? (laughs) By engaging in blatant discrimination based on the color of their skin. So instead of highlighting Asian American achievement as something that all Americans should emulate... So-called institutions of higher learning pursue equitable solutions that unjustly punish the most deserving. And these same universities, now a century into their transition from repositories for free thought to brainwashing factories growing the Marxist hive mind, have become ground zero for the demolition of Western civilization. In a masochistic form of irony, the same system of education that arose from centuries of Western pedagogy now seeks intellectual suicide. The same institutions that arose from Christian monasteries and cathedral schools now excoriate all tenets of Christianity. Western exploration, scientific advancement, philosophical debate, and rational enlightenment have all become targets for bolderization, if not outright censorship. Politicized department chairs regularly remove literary masterpieces from graduate-level curricula in chaotic quests to fight colonialism and white supremacy. And the end result has been anything but academic. Its real-world repercussions include a century of college students who have just a tattered comprehension of the greatness of their civilizational inheritance and the darkness from whence it emerged. While generations of Westerners have been taught to hate the foundations of their prosperity and strength, Islamic and communist civilizations can only laugh at the West's self-indulgent nihilism. The universities, having taken their West anti-Western zealotry to its logical conclusion, have even succeeded in reigniting an anti-Semitic bloodlust as rapacious as during the slaughter of World War II. And all of these dangerous consequences have come on the heels of the university system's full surrender to a Marxist disease that infects students with, the, with hate under the pretense of fairness. So, having done their job to erase Western history <clears throat> and weaken Western souls... The colleges have filled the ranks of government bureaucracies, corporate boards, furtive intelligence agencies, and military roundtables with woke anti-Western Marxists on foolish crusades for fake fairness too. It's only at this absurd juncture in history when legions of the indoctrinated and insane have swelled beyond the constraints of reason, rationality, and moderation that it's possible for the U S government to take the official position that it must brazenly discriminate against white people generally and white males specifically, simply because of their demographic strength. White men are passed over for scholarships, awards, and career advancements, not because they fail to compete, but because their successes have been judged unfair. Jokes are made at their expense because they're the only category of person whose mockery and derision are permitted. When white men engage in political protest, protesters target and harass them for alleged crimes that would never be pursued if not for their race. Even as fewer white men attend college and more continue to exit the labor market permanently, they are preposterously blamed for sustaining the dreaded twin demons of patriarchy and white supremacy. Morally vacuous Joe Biden lectures the world that the greatest danger to the United States is not Chinese communism or Islamic terror or the World Economic Forum's emerging globalist corporate oligarchy, but rather the elusive threat from poor white men and their hateful speech. So is it any wonder, then, why white men continue to exit the military, top businesses, and once-respected institution in droves? They've gotten the message and have no interest in defending a system that uses them as scapegoats, such as the catastrophic price of sacrificing fair and equal treatment for all when the woke lead us into the moral wilderness. Brilliant, brilliant essay from J.B. Shirk. Check it out in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Thank you again for taking a chance to hear what one voice has to say over on, you know, this corner of the spectrum. There are many voices out there. We're all trying to urge people to... You know, wake up, see the world as it is. I assume you're already awake, or you wouldn't even be considering listening to a program like this. Well, let's move forward. A couple other things here that I wanted to share with you. Um, Just because we push back against illicit authority, that doesn't mean that we're against all authority. I was talking yesterday about the anti-government, anti-authority, what is it, violent extremists, right? A-G-A-A-V-E. Craziness. Well, Francisco Zuniga, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has a really great article about the need for authority, but, but I love that this, this clarifies the kind of authority that, uh, that is legitimate. So in, in writing about this, Francisco says, when I was 14, I wanted to be Kurt Cobain. I wanted to drop out of school, be sad and poetic, and start a rock band. I actually said this to my dad. He took me to a burger joint, he heard me out, After listening to my explanations, my father said, Son, you're full of crap. Now, that simple statement was enough for me. I regained a perspective. I went back to being a normal teenager. My dad had fulfilled his role as the authority in my life. It was a good moment. And Francisco says authority is necessary. It's an innate part of human nature. But it is in crisis today because it has been rejected. Why? Now, he points out that authority is present everywhere in nature, Right? The wolf pack is led by the alpha. Pups learn how to hunt through their parents' example. A troop of gorillas is led and defended by an adult male, male. rather. In each case, authority is natural and essential to the preservation of life. Similarly, human beings need authority in our lives to continue to seek a quality life. We don't just simply survive. We require the liberty to exercise free will. And along the way, the authority of our parents and our teachers guide us. Their experience teaches us the difference between a wise decision and a harmful one. But he says, today, everywhere, authority is regarded with suspicion. And you can see evidence of this everywhere. Students in public schools are encouraged to hide things from their parents. They're taught through the actions of local governments and school boards that the authorities in their lives mean them harm. In California, parents are being told their children will be taken away if they, the parents, do not abdicate their authority to the state. In history classes around the country, students are being taught the authority of the founders of the United States is illegitimate because it's based on racism. So Francisco Zuniga says, why does Western culture reject authority today? And here are two answers that are worth pondering. Authority has been misinterpreted as domination. First, there is the fear of domination. The goal of human law, if the law is just, is not domination of one class over the other, it's mutual survival and fulfillment. So, Francisco says if I perceive my father as a dominating force instead of an authority who guides and protects, I interpret his words and actions as threats. His judgment of my desire to quit school becomes an attempt to repress the happiness I was seeking in my rock star fantasy. The difference between authority and domination has been confused. Now, the other answer is that Western society has lost its sense of transcendence. One can view transcendence in two related ways. On the one hand, the progress of human life toward the eternal, and on the other, as the individual's transcendence of himself. Now, the transcendence of the individual means that a person does not live for himself alone. An individual exists within a societal context. His life is intertwined with the lives of others. And Francisco Zuniga says today both understandings of transcendence are under attack. The idea of the eternal value of life is being replaced with the notion that value is given by the immediate world. There is no value outside of the here and now. Man creates value himself. And the inevitable inevitable result of this is the alienation of the human person. Every individual becomes the author of his own set of values. Each person becomes his own authority. What follows from this? Well, that everyone is everyone else's enemy, or at least their competitor. There is no authority. All that remains is the threat of domination by others when their values get in the way of one's own values. Interesting take. So Francisco Zuniga concludes by saying, clearly authority is in crisis, but fortunately it's not dead. The natural sources of authority are still in place. Father, mother, teachers... There are also still religious institutions with spiritual authorities who base their responsibilities on the intrinsic value of life and the instinct to guide and protect it. And he says, I for one am glad I listened to my dad when I was 14. He knew what he was talking about. I thought that was an interesting slant on authority. That's why I shared it with you today, just because I know we're told there is no authority outside of the state. And 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 that gets dangerous, especially when you're talking about moral authority. Why were we a better society, a better culture, when religion was a more widely accepted practice? I mean, the the number of the gro- the growing number of irreligious people or people who just reject religion outright. I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying that uh, the cultural influences have not led us to where you know. We're looking at legitimate moral authority, or at least competing moral authority with the state. Too many people think, well, if it's legal, it's good, it's right. They don't understand that right and wrong look very different. Anne Frank and the people who were hiding her from the Nazis were criminals. They were breaking the law. They were in the wrong as far as legal matters are concerned the people who were hunting for Anne Frank and her family, the people who eventually turned them in, those who arrested them, took them to the camps, where most of them died, they were all law-abiding citizens. But you tell me, who was on the right side of history? Kind of an interesting uh, interesting little thought experiment, right? One final thought here. I just want to share a brief one here. From This is from the Brownstone Institute. Charles, and I hope I'm saying his name right, Kerblich, Kerblich. Explains how the movies came to life in 2020. It's been a lot of years since I have watched the show uh, Deep Impact. But uh, apparently uh, Charles was watching with his boys. They called it Manly Movie Night. And uh, they they watched Deep Impact, released back in 1998. I thought it was very interesting in how the events of the COVID pandemic, you can you can see some similar mindsets at play in this movie. So here it is. The president of the United States, played by the venerable Morgan Freeman, is a stoic philosopher king burdened by the impossible task of saving the world from the destruction soon to be caused by a heartless asteroid. The underdog in the battle, he has only a very limited set of primitively advanced tools and a low probability of success. The other main character is an intrepid and beautiful reporter only concerned with finding out the truth, eliminating corruption, and challenging the powers that be. Stumbling onto the story of her life, her tireless effort exposes the government's hidden secret and wins her an invitation to the White House press corps and a primetime news anchor role. But tell me if this sounds familiar. The president is forced to announce the existence of of the asteroid at a press conference. At the very end of the conference, and barely audible before he takes questions, he flippantly imposes wage and price controls on all wages and prices, freezing them at the current levels for a whole year. Lockdown to save the world from asteroids. And from there, the movie proceeds further down the lockdown path. Martial law is eventually instituted. There's a large bunker in the Rocky Mountains that becomes Noah's Ark. A subset of the professional class of doctors, scientists, and more important humans are pre selected. The remainder we are informed are chosen equitably by random. But not everybody else, but everybody else rather is considered non essential. Outside events force our kindly philosopher king to make difficult decisions. Some things and people must be declared non essential. The market cannot possibly function to produce resources in potential safe areas. Only the government can build Noah's Ark and send the spaceship, the Messiah, to save what is left of humanity. Now, interestingly, there are several common tropes repeated throughout the entertaining disaster movies. The two, the most common, rather, are The Philosopher King and Lockdowns, or the inversion of these ideas. So, films like 1995's Outbreak or 2011's Contagion, Lockdown Cities to Stop the Spread. Even 1996's Independence Day has that Philosopher King president. And inversions of these ideas exist as well. For instance, 2004's Day After Tomorrow, a pretentious imbecile of a vice president ignores a heroic scientist's warnings about global climate change. Both the day after tomorrow and Independence Day have leaders who ordered mass evacuations too late, not doing enough, it increases the disaster. And that's just a small sample of some of the popular movies that you can can see this in. So how do these ideas infiltrate our subconscious mind? In a major disaster, do we demand a philosopher king take bold, decisive action? Well, guess what? Our philosopher king appeared on March 16th, 2020, in a press conference, flippantly closed schools, businesses, elective surgeries, cancer screenings, and dentistry, among other things. Do you recall, is that that painful to remember? By March 27th, price controls were implemented, right? Monthly rent, mortgage payments, student loan debt. And then a new philosopher king arrived. (laughs) And... uh, began building back better i got a link to this article in my show notes at the thebrianhydeshow.com these are the show notes for november 16th i hope you'll check the article out this is the brian hyde show